The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Remain standing with me this morning as we continue our reading through the 119th Psalm. This morning, we're going to be in verses 81 through 88. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, we know that we do not come today to worship up here. We don't come today to worship one who is our equal. Father, we know that you, the true and living God, you are higher and greater and more magnificent than anything that we could ever imagine. And so we would be fools, Father, to believe that we're going to be able to wrap you up in a nice, tidy little box, put a bow around you, and set you up on a shelf as something that we have mastered. We recognize, Father, that as long as we are the creature and you are the creator, there will always be things that don't sit right with us. There will always be things that don't quite seem settled. There will always be things that we can't quite put our finger on. And yet if you have revealed them, then they must be true. So, Father, we ask that you would give us hearts of submission today. I ask, Father, that you would guide my lips and help me only to say that which is true and then give these people ears to hear that they would hear it and receive it as truth. Even if our wicked and deceptive hearts tell us it can't be. Father God, we want this because we want to see you as you really are. We know that any concoction we come up with, that any imagination we dream up will always be lesser than you because you are infinitely good. So Father, we ask you to reveal yourself as you are, to help us see you as you are, and to rest in that. Father, we ask this for your glory and for our good, and in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we have spent the last two Lord's Days together seeking to find an answer to the question, what does the Apostle Paul mean when he says 
that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. If you've gathered with us during that time, then you surely remember the context in which he made this statement. Verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1, as they were originally written in Greek, are one very long sentence, perhaps the most magnificent sentence ever recorded. It begins with Paul calling us to bless God because God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul then goes on to unpack for us just what these spiritual blessings are. He pulls back the curtain a bit and he gives us a heavenly perspective. He gives a view from heaven that stretches out over all eternity that shows us just how the Godhead has and is working in perfect unity to bring about his magnificent purpose and the salvation of his saints. In verses 3 through 6, we find the working of the Father. In verses 7 through 10, we're shown the work of the Son. In verses 11 through 14, we see the working of the Spirit, but all working the same purpose. Father, Son, and Spirit, each working in accordance with his own personal property, but all doing the same work, all working to bring about God's good and perfect and eternal plan, his decreeing, his accomplishing, his applying, his redemption of his people to the praise of his glorious grace. So as I've tried to show you over these last two weeks, it all begins with and is grounded in this, God choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. What does the Apostle Paul mean by those words? What he means is this, that it is God's choosing which ultimately places man under the fount of his endless blessings. God's choosing. This is the reason why one man hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, repents, believes, and is saved, while so many other hear that same gospel and continue on in their sin. Well, I'm going to say it for you another way. This is my third week in a row to try to sum this up for you. I believe we've got a number of more weeks when I'm going to continue to say this as concisely and clearly as possible. The ultimate reason, the true definitive factor behind the salvation of any man is that he has been chosen by God. Based solely on God's sovereign will, he has chosen, he has predestined, he has elected individual people whom he will save. Not based on any conditions met by that man. Not based on anything that he has or will do. Not even based on foreseen faith, but according to God's good and perfect and eternal will. In eternity past, God sovereignly chose whom he will save. At the appointed time, God worked in those whom he has chosen to bring them to repentant faith. Then God will continue to work to hold fast to those very same men to make sure that they endure to the very end. So with all of that in mind, I ask you to return to your feet, please. We return to this magnificent portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We read verses 3 through 14. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God, and it should be received as such. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight 
making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, again, we ask you to do what only you can do. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe what you have revealed to us here in your word. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as you have considered the biblical evidence that I brought before you over these last two weeks, as you have heard how I arrived and so many others have arrived at this interpretation of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, I pray that you have taken the time to study for yourselves before coming to your conclusions. If you landed in somewhere completely different than I did, if you have determined that I don't know what I'm talking about, that I'm some, some way deceived or confused about what the Apostle Paul actually means by what he has actually said, then I pray that you have not merely rejected what I said because it did not settle right in your heart. I pray that you have not merely rejected what I said because it did, match, did not match up with what you have always been taught to believe. For those of you that land in the exact same place that I land, for those of you that believe that my interpretation is spot on, for those of you that see the very same things that I see in the scripture, I likewise pray that you did your own work before arriving at that conclusion. No matter where you end up, no matter what you believe the Apostle Paul means by what he actually says, I urge you, don't be a second-hander. By the working of the Holy Spirit, do your own work. Do your own digging. Do your own studying. Pray to God that he would give you discernment. That he would bring you to rightly understand what he means by these words. Now if you sit here this morning and you think, but I don't possess such a desire. Can't you just tell me? Isn't that what we pay you for? Get up and tell us what we're supposed to think. Show us what we're supposed to see and we'll trust you. Otherwise, you don't need to be our pastor and we should run you off. So if you sit here this morning thinking, I don't possess the desire to do the work necessary to determine what I think Paul means by what he says, then I tell you, you must pray that God would give you exactly that, the desire. How many times have I told you my first prayer every single morning before I get out of bed is this, Father, give me a deeper desire to love your word. Make my studies a delight cause me to cherish and what I see of you as you've revealed yourself in your word. Dear children, I can look back over the course of my life and tell you that he has answered this prayer time and time and time again. Almost every day, in fact. He causes my studies to be a delight. I can't wait to get back into my office and dive deeply into God's word to see what do you actually mean by what you have actually said. Not because I want to know knowledge, not because I just want to, to learn some things and come and profess them to you because I want to see his face. I want to know more of this God who has saved me. So one way or another, you must put in the work. There's too much at stake here for you to simply pick a side. These are deep and difficult doctrines, yes, but it's important. We're talking about the very nature of God. We're talking about the way you have come to be saved. We're talking about the way you can have any assurance that you will stay saved until your very last breath. 
So you cannot afford to be swayed by the logic or the arguments of men. So I ask you, before you trust what I say, before you write me off completely, take the time to determine for yourself, not based on emotion or philosophy, not based on your like or dislike of any one preacher who has held to any of these traditions for themselves, but based on this word, Put in the time, put in the work, put in the prayer, put in the study to determine for yourself what does God mean when he says that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now for those of you that are already doing this work or those of you that are now convinced that you must do this work, allow me to give you a word of counsel. Many otherwise very solid believers have ended up trusting in and trying to defend some really weak theology because they did not maintain a consistent method a consistent standard for handling the scriptures. They would approach the study of one difficult doctrine with a certain hermeneutic, while come to another with something altogether different. I'm gonna explain to you what I mean. How have you come to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity? You will not find any single passage in scripture that says that there is one true and living God existing eternally in three persons. You won't find anything nearly that concise in all the pages of Scripture with regards to the nature of the triune God, and yet you believe it to be true. If you're a Christian, you know that there is one God, excuse me, that there is one God, and that that one God has always existed in three persons. Now, you probably learned this because someone first told it to you. That's the beauty of doing theology in community. I'm not telling you that you must take your Bible and go into a cave for a year before you can have an opinion. It's the blessing of the church. We protect each other from being blown about by any doctrine and cunning of man. We do theology in community. And we have creeds and confessions of faithful men that have gone before us. Because the reality is, you've only got one lifetime to do this work. Most of you only have so many hours within the day to do this work. And so we proudly, we thankfully stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. So surely someone came to you and told you God is one God in three persons. But then you went to the scriptures and you found it for yourself. You went to the scriptures and you found that the whole of the Bible teaches that God is one. Scripture explicitly says it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But then you looked and all over the Bible, you found these other passages which equally spoke about Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit as being equally God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Bible explicitly says that God is one. The Bible equally says that there are three persons who are God. So you have to decide what to do with this. We know of nothing else like it in all the world. If you've gathered here on Wednesday nights, you know I've warned you over and over and over again that there is absolutely no analogy that will work. Not a tree, not an egg, not a three-leaf clover. Not water, not ice, not mist, not a man who's also a father, who's also a husband, who's also a brother. There is no analogy in all the world that will accurately express to you the fullness of the triune nature of God. In fact, if you try to take this scripture, if you try to explain the theology behind how is God three in one, and you force it through these human lenses, you will very likely, man has, ended up in great heresy like modalism. Because we take this great mystery and we try to compress it down into something that makes us comfortable. Something that seems right to our mind. And so, 
in a desire to remain faithful to true and biblical understanding of the nature of God, we simply hold these two seemingly incompatible statements, these two truths in our mind at the same time. Much like, this, much like the reality that Jesus is one person with two natures, fully God, fully man. We believe it because the Bible says it. There's no way that we could have reasoned up to it. There's nothing else in all the universe. There's no sufficient analogy that can help this make sense fully in our minds. We can't begin with our own philosophies and wisdom. The reality is that God is one in nature, three in persons. Jesus Christ is one person with two nature. These things would be completely incomprehensible. Again, I say we would never think these up in our own minds. There's no way to fully make them make sense to ourselves. No way that we would believe it except for the fact that Scripture says it. And if Scripture says it, then it must be true. Therefore, we believe in order to understand. Credo, ut, and telegum. We come to the Scriptures and say, if the Scripture says it, I shall believe it. I don't understand it, but I shall believe it. And trust that God will give me the understanding that I need. Rather than forcing Scripture to fit into a nice, neat box, rather than demanding that the nature of God comply with what seems right to us, Rather than explaining away or watering down any one of these statements or another, we are willing to be uncomfortable. We are willing to confess that something is true even though we have no possible explanation for how it works. In short, we recognize that when the finite creature seeks to contemplate the infinite creator, we always will come to a point where we must make room in our thoughts for new categories. New categories of thought must come in and these categories will stretch us beyond anything that we would have previously arrived at. Anything that we can be comfortable in. Anything beyond the nature of our understanding. We come to the word of God and we come in faith. Acknowledging that it is we who must be transformed. And that this transformation will be uncomfortable. It will be scary. Oftentimes it will be painful. But it's worth it. And so, you embrace this hermeneutic with regards to the triune nature of God or the hypostatic union of Christ, the Bible clearly says that these two things are true. Even if I can't understand how they can both be true at the same time, therefore, I will believe it. This is the way you approach difficult doctrines of Scripture. Now, what I'm saying to you is, do the same thing with the issue that's before you today. Scripture clearly teaches that according to his own immutable purpose and perfect plan God has sovereignly chosen those whom he would save and did absolutely everything necessary in order to save you not just in one place not just in two there's great difficulty there's great danger in setting theology based on one or two random verses of scripture but over and over and over again the word of God makes clear that no man can come to saving faith unless the God of the universe makes it so and at the very same time, Scripture says over and over and over again that you must choose. You must decide that you must turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ in order to be saved and that you will be held eternally responsible for the choices that you make. So the question is before you is, are you willing to allow both of these biblical realities to exist in your mind at the very same time? I'm telling you it's going to get tougher when we get to verse 11. We get to verse 11, and I say to you that God is absolutely sovereignly in control of literally every single thing that happens in the universe, including the free will choices of man. And 
that man is responsible for every single decision that he makes. You will not understand how it can be true. I don't understand how it can be true, how all this works. But the question is, does the Bible say it? If the answer is yes, then we are obligated to receive it in faith and trust that God will bring us to whatever understanding we need. If your answer is no, then with all humility and love, before you settle there, and you are welcome to settle there, you have a place in this church if you settle there. I love you as a Christian brother if you settle there. I am not calling you a heretic or a non-believer or a child of the devil if you land there. But before you land there, I humbly and lovingly ask you, would you consider, have you arrived at that conclusion by using the same approach to Scripture that you use for every other difficult doctrine? Or have you perhaps forced it through some lens of your mind, through some category of thought, because these two statements seem to your mind to be incompatible? So, before we move on to the second half of Ephesians 1-4, it seemed wise for us to take some time to see how the Bible answers some questions that tend to come up whenever men first consider this truth. Over the last few years, I've had countless conversations with men concerning Calvinism in general and unconditional election in specific. Now, these conversations, they inevitably end up kind of following a similar path and we inevitably end up talking about similar concerns and questions and so I sat down and I did my best to list out what those questions were and then I enlisted some of you to give me some of the concerns that tend to come to you most often whenever you sit down to talk about the concept the biblical reality of unconditional election what I found is that while there's a wide range of questions, while men will focus on different aspects of this and, and their questions will take different forms and there'll be certain things which tend to stick in men's minds, generally the questions and concerns that men have with regards to the sovereignty of God and this doctrine in specific fall into one of three categories. And so rather than trying to address 10 or 15 different questions just at some surface level, it seemed good to me that we slow down and we take our time to address the three of these in real depth. We dig deeply and ask, how does God answer these in his words? And then I began to write. And by the time I thought I was done putting down what I found in Scripture in terms of how he answered that first question, I had recorded 7,000 words. Now, if you're wondering, 7,000 words is an average sermon for me. I write 7,000 words, but then somehow I speak 14,000. I genuinely don't know how this works, but we have... We've proven this. I've got a manuscript in front of me, everything I hope to say. Lynn has then gone and transcribed a couple of my sermons. Never again. That's hard work. She has gone and transcribed my sermons. She says, well, you spoke fourteen to 15,000 words. I don't know where those words came from. I will tell you, most of the time, whenever I end up regretting something I said, it was one of those extra 7,000 words, not one of the 7,000 that I'd recorded here. But somehow... I took a dozen questions and reduced them to three. Somehow, I took an hour's worth of words and I only managed to answer one. I don't really know what to do with that. I assure you that it isn't bravado or pride or arrogance. I don't think that you people show up on any Sunday morning just chomping at the bit to hear what I think about any of this. The reality is that Every syllable is so very precious. God just won't let us leave any meat on the bone. 
So week after week, I feel like he just keeps dragging us deeper and deeper and deeper. And I, I pray that you see this, but what's going to happen is as soon as we're done, I'm going to go and I'm going to put some serious prayer into what God would have us do. Is it time to move on? Is it time to finish up this fourth verse in Ephesians chapter 1? Or would he have me to bring to you everything that's now sitting on the cutting room floor? Now the easy answer, of course, is to move on. <laughs> but God has yet to let us take the easier out towards anything. So I have a sneaking suspicion that you'll be getting chosen by God part four next week. But I pray that God will bless us. So, the first question that always arises, not merely when we're talking about the topic of unconditional election, but anytime we venture off into the waters with regards to the sovereignty of God, the very first question that comes up is, what about the free will of man? Now this tends to happen because so many preachers, they come to passages like Ephesians 1 or Romans 8 and they read words like chosen or predestined or elect and immediately they tell us God cannot mean that he has sovereignly chosen who will be saved because we know that man has free will. And then they use that as a basis for setting boundaries around what the scripture can and cannot say. This phrase, free will, is presented like it's some kind of a trump card against Calvinism. Man has free will, therefore, Scripture cannot say this. Now, that's certainly the phrase that rattled around in my mind for so long as I resisted this. I need you to know, dear friends, I didn't just come out of the womb a Calvinist. I came to these doctrines in Scripture, and I hated them. I resisted them. I know very few Calvinists that didn't. It doesn't seem right to our hearts and to our minds. It seems unfair. We cry out with Paul's opponent in Romans 9, God surely must be unjust if this is who you are. And so we figure out all the ways to explain it away, to water, to water it down, to, to, to reason it out. But then eventually by the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of his word, he beats me into submission. But I want you to know that this claim of free will, the sovereignty of man, to be quite blunt, that this was the tool I used to resist what I saw so clearly in Scripture. And so whenever somebody comes to me, whenever a man comes to me and they say, well, what about the free will of man? I find it important to ask them what they mean by those words. Now, I realize how frustrating this can be. I realize that whenever I say something like this, people accuse me of being a liar or being coy or, or somehow playing word games with them. But the reality is that I cannot assume that you and I mean the same thing by these difficult and loaded phrases. I can't assume that we mean the same thing when we speak about the free will of man. If we do this, we're sure to miss each other along the way. What ends up happening is we just talk at each other and we become frustrated because neither one of us are growing in our understanding. We're using the same word, but we're talking about something altogether different. And so, what do most people mean when they speak about the free will of man? Now, as best I can tell, in the, in the broadest sense of the word, whenever a Christian speaks about the free will of man, he means that man is born into this world able to either choose to do good or to choose to do bad. That ultimately, he has that self-determination. He is born mostly neutral, and he can determine, will I do good or will I do bad? Man, in his natural state, is able to sin or to not sin. This is what people typically mean when they talk about the free will of man. Now, there's, there's much greater, this can branch off into a million different directions, but with regards to this text. So then when it comes to the question of salvation, when it comes to the question of how do we interpret what it means for God to have chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, they typically use free will to mean that mankind is fundamentally free and able to either accept or reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Is that a fair working definition? Typically, believers who hold to this view of free will, they point to all the verses in Scripture which God calls men to make a choice. All the passages where God makes clear that man is eternally responsible for whatever decision he makes. And our mind tells us that God would not command us to do something, then hold us responsible, punish us, for failing to do the thing that he has commanded unless we are absolutely able to comply. And so many believers, they see the text that call men to choose what is good and to reject what is evil. The passages where Jesus says that, or excuse me, where the, in Acts, where it says that God has commanded all people everywhere to repent. And they assume that this must mean that man everywhere at every time must be fully capable of repenting. Now this is not an unfair line of reasoning. And if these passages were the only ones that were given to us in Scripture, then I would wholeheartedly agree with this definition of free will. Just as if all we had in Scripture were the words declaring that God is one, I would be a Unitarian. But the reality is the Scripture doesn't stop there. So I would refer you back to much of what I've said over the last two weeks with regards to this. It really does set the stage for much, much of this. But we've talked about the moral inability of fallen man. Now, again, I realize we've already touched on this, but it's absolutely fundamental to everything that comes next. God made the first man sinless and good, and yet Adam was able to sin. This is why God looked at him and warned him the consequences if he rebelled. If you reach out your hand and take from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, you shall die. Implicit within that is that Adam was able to sin. You must recognize that Adam was not merely standing there as an individual. He represented the whole of humanity. That every single person that ever lived, he was truly represented by that man standing there in that garden. In a very real way, according to Romans 5, when Adam rebelled, we were right there with him. Just as those who are Christian, this, just as those who are in Christ, Scripture explicitly says that we have been crucified and buried and raised and are now seated with him in the heavenly places because we are in Christ. Similarly, man as he is in Adam, as he was born into this world, he is said to have sinned with him. It's as if we ourselves reached out our hand and took from that fruit. Not only are we guilty before God, but our very nature becomes corrupted. Still bearing the image of God, but fallen and distorted and enslaved by sin. So we look back and we see that while Adam had the ability, right up to the moment that he reached out his hand, Adam had the ability to not sin from the very moment that he chose that sin, from the very moment that he rebelled against God, it was not possible for natural man to not sin. Think about it. Even if you had never heard the, the words of Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even if you didn't know David's words in Psalm 51, it talks about being born in sin, brought forth in iniquity. Even if you had never read any of those words, just look around you. The undeniable truth is that man, as he is born into this world, cannot not sin. If it were possible, surely someone would have made it. Surely someone born to the best parents raised in the best church, under the best teachers, put in the perfect situation, in the perfect bubble, surely someone would have made it through life without sinning, or at least made a good run at it. And yet, what do we find? From the moment they can open their little lips, we're surrounded by a bunch of little sinners. 
Man cannot not sin. It never happens. It never will happen. Because natural man, every single human, as he has been born in Adam, we come into this world enslaved to sin. We read in Romans 8, Paul there is comparing the man who is in the Spirit, the man who is in Christ and has been filled with the Holy Spirit, and the man that is left in the flesh. The man is he is born into this world in Adam. And he says, Romans 8, beginning in verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh, those who remain in the flesh, those who are born only in Adam and not born again in the Spirit, they cannot please God. Jesus says in Romans 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3 that all men everywhere are under sin. That's why no one does good. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one fears God. Because man as he is born into this world, natural man, fleshly man, man as he is in Adam, he is a slave to sin. Scripture makes clear that in his slavery, natural man is unable to rightly discern the gospel, to rightly see Jesus Christ as he is, and turn in repentant faith. 1 Corinthians 2.14 the natural person, the man as he is born, just left to himself as he continues on like the rest of mankind, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In the words of Ephesians 2, in the words of Colossians 2, we are dead in sin. In the uncircumcision of your flesh, we are dead to the things of God. Again, I would urge you to go back and listen to the last two weeks worth of sermons because the reality is that scripture teaches over and over and over again that natural man man as he is born into this world is unable to choose what is good and pleasing to God beyond this and perhaps even more scary he is unable to turn in repentant faith upon hearing the gospel and trust in Jesus Christ so if by the free will of man you mean that apart from direct and powerful intervention from God man can come to Christ if by free will you mean that unregenerate man is able to hear and respond in repentant faith to the gospel, then I must tell you based on the teaching of Scripture that I do not believe free will exists. I need you to hear me. I am not saying that fallen man has not lost the natural or the physical ability to choose obedience. I'm not saying that unregenerate man does not possess the natural or physical ability to respond to the gospel in faith and I really do think that this is where the conversation typically goes off the rails whenever you get a reformed and a non-reformed person together and they begin to talk about this that's why it's so important that we identify what do you mean by free will because we miss each other coming and going when we all fell in Adam we did not lose the faculties necessary to make moral choices do you understand what I'm saying in the fall, it is not as though the part of man's brain that allows him to make moral choices died. In the fall, it is not as though we lost the ability to believe in things. Natural man makes all kinds of decisions. You literally, literally make thousands, perhaps millions of choices every single day, and this includes moral choices. This includes the choice whether or not to trust in Jesus Christ. These are real choices based on what man most really wants. Man has not lost the natural ability to make moral choices and nothing external to man is forcing him to choose what he chooses. Now this is a definition of free will that I find to be biblical. 
that a man's will is free as long as he has the ability to choose what he most strongly desires. In fact, I would argue, along with Augustine and Edwards and R.C. Sproul, that not only can man choose that which he most strongly desires, that man always chooses that which he most desires. The t-shirt, the collared shirt, the button-up shirt, the shirt that you are wearing this morning, you chose that shirt for some reason. Now, you might say yes, because that was the only clean shirt that I had. And that may be true, but the reality is you made the choice. You chose not to wear a dirty shirt. You chose not to wash a different shirt. You chose not to go borrow a shirt from a friend. You chose not to go to the store and purchase a new shirt. You wanted to wear that shirt, even if you hate that shirt. Even if you despise that shirt and think you look ugly in that shirt. You wanted to wear that shirt more than you wanted to wake up early and do laundry. More than you wanted to inconvenience your friend. More than you wanted to spend money. More than you wanted to come to church topless. More than you wanted to stay home from church. You wanted that shirt more than you wanted any other options or you wouldn't be sitting here wearing the shirt. You with me? All day long, you are literally choosing, and every single one of those choices is in accordance with what you most strongly desire, even when you're not, al- not aware of the process that's going on. Even when you don't even understand your own choices because of the deceptive nature of your own heart. Even when you don't even like the choices that you make and you don't like the consequences that come out of those choices, you always choose what you most strongly want at that time. You may have wanted to go to the gym. You may have made a pledge to go to the gym. But if you don't get up and go, it becomes apparent that you had a stronger desire to sit on your couch and eat ice cream than you did to get in shape. Our choices prove out our desires. You always choose that which you most strongly desire. And this does not just apply to things like ice cream and working out and t-shirts. It's regard to moral issues as well. When the Apostle Paul says, and this is the verse that's always run out whenever I say something like this. The Apostle Paul says, I do not do the things that I want to do, and the very things that I hate, I do. And now we do find that the Apostle Paul is speaking here, and I believe in Romans 7 that he's talking about regenerate man. Because who else would delight in the law of the, God, the, law of the Lord? Who else loves the law of God unless a man has been filled with the Spirit of God? But the reality is he's talking here about that he wants to do certain things and he ends up doing the things that he hates and he's not lying. Paul absolutely desires holy perfection. Paul absolutely desires to live in sinless obedience to God just like you and I do. But what does he go on to say there in Romans 7? I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Don't you see? Paul sincerely desires to live in obedience to God. He sincerely desires to please Christ. And yet the flesh that remains within Paul, it's him. Who will deliver me from this wretched body? It's him. It's an internal struggle. It's the flesh that remains. That flesh wages war against him. Paul has a desire to please Christ. His flesh has a desire for sin. And some days, the desires of the flesh win. Some days, the desire for sin is greater than the desire to please Christ. And on those days, we choose sin. Even when we hate the consequences of those sin. 
Even when we swore that we would never again choose sin. You always choose. You always choose. You always choose what you most strongly desire in that moment. And it is because of this reality that you are answerable to God for every single decision that you make. Because it is a decision which reveals your heart. Isn't that what Jesus says? It's the motivation to the heart. What did God look down upon the world and what brought God to such sorrow that he would flood the world? What caused him to, to send a deluge of water to wipe out the whole of mankind, save Noah and his family? He looked down and he saw that the desires of men's heart was constantly evil. It's the motivations of the heart. That's what renders men guilty before God. Now certainly there are outward things that we can do that are in and of themselves guilty and sinful and displeasing to God. But the reality is that those things, they begin in the root, the seed, the heart that is filled with lust or anger or pride or unforgiveness. What did James say about sin? James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Man always chooses what he most strongly desires, and this is precisely why he answers to God for those decisions. So that every single time we come to a scripture that calls man to make a choice, every single time we hear Christ calling men to turn, repent, and believe in him, every time we proclaim to our children the words of Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you may live. We do so sincerely because we know we're not talking to robots. We're talking to rational, moral agents. We're talking to children and women and men who always choose what they most strongly desire. We're not calling to do anything that they don't possess the physical or the natural ability to do. If they desire obedience more than rebellion, if they desire Christ more than their sin, they will absolutely choose that, guaranteed. You must hear me tell you this as plainly as possible. So many people, so many people, they refuse to receive the doctrines of grace because they do not understand this point right here. They completely misunderstand. So you must hear me tell you as plainly as possible, no one desires to come to Christ and repent at faith only to be turned away because they were not chosen by him. No one is giving their life to truly follow after Christ only to be shoved back into their sin by him. Man is free in this way. Man always chooses what he most wants. If you see Christ as beautiful, if you hear the gospel and desire to trust in Christ, you will do exactly this and you will be saved. What did Jesus say in John 6? All who come, me, come to me, I will never cast them out. No man has ever seen Jesus Christ as glorious and beautiful and trustworthy. No man has ever seen Jesus Christ as their only hope. No man has ever tried to turn and repent of their sin and trust in him, only to have Jesus say, you're not on the list. If you choose to reject the gospel, continue on in darkness, you reveal that your heart most strongly desires the darkness. The problem comes in because we can't change our own hearts. That's why Jesus in that very same chapter goes on to say, 
and no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. It's a matter of desire. It's a matter of the will. I can't stress this enough. Men pursue what seems best to them. And Scripture makes undeniably clear that unless God intervenes, natural man, man as he is born in Adam, he will always desire sin and reject Christ. Now you notice I, I put a qualifier in there. I said that man will always choose what he most strongly desires in that moment. Because the reality is we make all kinds of choices and we look backwards on it and we go, well, that was not good. If I had known then what I know now, I would not have desired that choice. So even without fully understanding the consequences of his choice, natural man, unless God supernaturally intervenes, unless he has chosen to cause you to come to life and give you a new heart, you will always, always, always choose sin and darkness and reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about another popular passage that comes up often when we talk about this. Joshua 24, 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers uh, served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose you this day who you will serve. So you see this. He's, he's, He's talking about a question of what seems right to you. What seems evil to you? What do you most strongly desire? If it seems evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods that your father served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land in whom you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua is calling the people to consider and choose. Consider and make a choice. What do you most strongly desire? Do you see God as glorious? Do you delight in God? Do you choose to follow God or do you choose these other gods? Choose for yourself whom you will follow based on what seems most attractive to you. And so people, they, they quickly swear that they're going to serve God. They say, we'll do this. We will do this. We will follow with you, Joshua. We will serve the Lord. But then what did Joshua say? You see, most people don't read this far down. Most people stop there and say, see, it's a choice. God says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Joshua says in 2419 this, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Listen, Joshua's not saying that literally all of these men are unregenerate. He's not saying that literally all these men are still completely enslaved to sin, but he's making clear you don't have this ability in and of yourself, so quit making these hasty promises. Quit thinking you have the ability to will and work to follow after and to serve God. You saw what happened to your father's. After all the mighty works and all the miracles and all the plagues and all the power by which God redeemed these people, he called them out to the wilderness and their hearts went right back to Egypt. So don't believe that you can change your heart. Don't believe that you can serve God unless God does the thing necessary to cause you to serve him. You're not able to serve the Lord. But the the lack of ability, read through the rest of the Old Testament. What caused them to be unable to serve the Lord? It was the hardness of their heart. It was their love for sin. It was their love for foreign women. It was their love for pagan gods. It was their love for everything other than God. They chose what they most strongly desired. Therefore, they're fully responsible. Don't you see? Man does not punish a man with no legs for not getting up and running. God doesn't chain a man to a chair and then punish him for not getting up. God speaks to men who possess the natural physical capacities to do exactly what he's calling them to do. Natural man is 
physically, naturally capable of obeying God. He's physically capable of trusting in Christ. The question is, is he morally able? Is that what he desires most? And the whole of Scripture declares that he's not. Ephesians 2, man is dead in his sins. Ephesians 4, man is blind because of the hardness of his heart. John 3, men hate the light and love the darkness because their ways are evil. 2 Corinthians 2, the gospel is the stench of death to them. We hold the gospel before them. They don't delight in the gospel. They don't desire the gospel. They don't choose the gospel because they smell death. It's a stench. They run from it. Man's will is free to choose. And in this freedom, natural man always chooses sin. So in this sense, natural man's will is in no way free. He's truly enslaved. He's a slave to the darkness, the evil desires of his own heart. Man is born bound to sin. But even in this being bound up, even in this slavery, there's this moral issue. Go back to Romans 1. Man chooses this. They exchange the glory of God, the eternal and infinite God, in exchange for his creatures, for his finite creatures. They suppress the truth of God in order to embrace the lies of men. Again, this is why inability does not eliminate responsibility. In Adam, we rejected God and we sided with the devil. In time, we continued in the hardness of our heart. It was a moral decision, a choice that we would have made 100 times out of 100. We are unable to choose Christ because we do not want him. I'm afraid so many people, they, they have this unbiblical picture of, of man. They picture the whole world as as if we're drowning in a lake and we're all just crying out to God just to save us, just to save us, just to save us. But then that God rejects these earnest pleas because he hadn't chosen us. And then perhaps just at that moment as you reach out your hand to take hold of the help that he offers, he pushes you back into the lake. But we know that isn't true. Man hasn't stumbled into a lake. He has willfully entered into war with God. If man could get to God, if natural man could get to God, if he could get his hands on God, he would kill him. He did. The Son of God came to earth and extended his hand, the hand of salvation, the offer of eternal life, and they killed him. What was the difference between Judas and Peter? The interceding prayers of Christ and the work of the Father. Natural man chooses what he most strongly desires, and what he most strongly desires is to put God to death. You know this. Natural man isn't crying out for mercy. He's cursing the name of God. Even if he just does it in the quiet rebellion of his own heart. You might sit there and think, I never hated God. I never cried out against God. I never cursed God. Dear friends, don't you see, by merely choosing anything other than God, you're hating him because he's the highest and the greatest and the best. If I present to you two options, 
One is a T-bone and one is a ribeye. You're not not making some heinous decision to choose one over the other because they're relatively equal. But when you take the infinitely glorious God of the universe, you say, I reject him in exchange for anything else. Do you see the crime you have committed? Do you see the hatred that you have perpetrated? Man is not crying out to God for mercy. Man is cursing the name of God and praying that God would die. That's why he says in John 3 that natural man hates the light and loves the darkness. Because our ways are wicked. We know that if we come to the light, our works will be exposed. Surely this matches your own experience. Did you truly want Christ? I'm not talking about wanting to escape the fires of hell. I'm not talking about wanting to stop the feeling of shame that you had for your sin. I'm talking about seeing Christ as your only hope. There was never a day in my life when I did not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was never a day in my, at least my, my conscious life, when I did not know that Jesus was the Son of God who died in the place of sinners and rose again. There was never a day in my conscious life when I did not know that if I did not turn and trust and repent, if I did not entrust my life to him, that I would be lost for all eternity. And yet I did not repent until one day I did. It wasn't that I'd been trying to get, God, get to God and finally I broke free. It wasn't that, it wasn't that my efforts had finally paid off. It wasn't that I found the right guy that could just word the gospel in just the right way and implore me in just the right way. I looked up and one day realized I chose Christ. I desire Christ. I'm following Christ. I don't even know when that day was. I couldn't even tell you when this turn happened in my heart. But I looked up and realized one day I've got brand new desires and I've got no idea where they came from. I didn't choose them. I didn't desire them. I was quite happy with my life exactly where it is because the reality is that these new desires, they caused my walk to get a whole lot more difficult. But now I want this more than I ever wanted anything else. What explains that? What's the answer for that? I see you smiling because it was your experience too. If there's ever been a man that woke up one day and thought, you know what, today's the day I choose Christ, I fear for you, friend. And this is why the words of Scripture over and over and over again push men so deeply into considering the choice that they make. Why did Jesus seem to make it so stinking difficult? The crowd would come. They'd want exactly what he had to say. And what would he do? He'd say something incredibly hard, and they'd all run away. He said, you've got to take this serious. You've got to understand who I am. I've got to show you just how badly your flesh hates who I really am. Otherwise, you're going to try to follow me in the flesh. And there's nothing that disgusts God more than man trying to please him in the flesh. Any of you have a barn, uh, uh, barn cat? Outdoor cat? Why do they kill stuff and bring it to your porch like you want it? Thanks for that mole. I was really not going to be able to sleep at night unless I knew that you had taken that one down. That's what the flesh does to God. We come running to him. We say, look what we've done, God, in our abilities. Look how we've followed you in our own power. Look how my free will chose to bring you glory. And he says, that's a dead mole. Get it off my porch. You looked up one day and something inside you changed. And isn't this precisely what God promised in the new covenant? 
as Moses was preparing to die and to hand the people off to Joshua, he says to the nation, Deuteronomy 29, 2, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Isn't this exactly the way Jesus spoke in the New Testament? The people saw the signs and the wonders and the miracles and they heard the same gospel. But he says, you don't have eyes to see, you don't have ears to hear. Therefore, you cannot you cannot come to me. Listen to these other Old Testament promises and see if they don't match up. See if they don't make absolutely abundantly clear to you what God must do in order for you to be saved. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. Eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, new desires to walk in my statutes. All the working of God. Because only he can do this. And it isn't until he does this that anyone will repent and believe in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Man is blind, man is deaf, man is enslaved by the devil. He is having his eyes blinded by the devil. You think, well, then how can he be held responsible? How can he be responsible that the devil has clouded his eyes and caused him not to see the light of the gospel? Well, what does Paul say in Ephesians 2? that you are spiritually dead, following after the prince of the power of the air, following after the desires of your mind and your body. You follow the devil because you love the devil. See Genesis 3. You trust in his promises and you hate God. It's a moral decision. Man is enslaved, he is blinded, he is unable to see the glory of God in Christ. Verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. I was going to talk today about, um, about evangelism, maybe next week. How does evangelism fit in with all this? But the reality is, you just keep putting Christ out there. But the pressure is off you to make a new Christ. The pressure is off you to convince people to come to that Christ. The pressure is off you to soften the message. The pressure is off you to woo people. You hold before them the living God. You say, this is Christ. Come to him and be saved. Reject him and be damned. Make the choice. So he does this. He proclaims him. This is the means that God uses to call men to life. There's power in the word of God. When the spirit of God takes that word, he calls men to life. Those men then respond in repentant faith. But the men that Paul was speaking to, every single one of them was blind. Every single one of them was deaf. Every single one of them was enslaved to sin. At their core, they were haters of God. Until God does something. To the one we have sinned against. The one we have rebelled against. The one we would kill if we could get our hands upon him. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness. What power was there in the words of God that said, let light shine out of the darkness? Those of you that have been here on Wednesday night, you know how it brings me almost to the point of tears every time we talk about the God of the universe breathing out stars. Any one of those stars melts your face off. And there's trillions of them. 
And by the same power of that word, that God speaks. The same God who said, let there be light, he's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray you see this. Isn't this what I tell you week after week? For the last four years, this is not what I've told you. That our goal as we come into this place is to see the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. And we know that we will not see it unless he gives us eyes to see. So we pray, God, let us see this light. Speak your word and cause our lights, our hearts to be enlightened that we may see, cause our eyes to open, that we may see your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ, because he is so beautiful. He is so glorious. This is why we don't make up another Christ, because he's the best. Nothing can compare. Nothing can save. We hold up the real Christ. When men's eyes are blind, they're not going to see him. They're not going to receive him. But the moment that God enlightens their heart, the moment that he opens their eyes, they see what is best, and they cannot resist. They say, that, that is what is best. And I love it. And I love him. And I choose, I desire to follow him all the days of my life. He is my only hope. He is my ultimate treasure. But as long as man remains dead and sin, left in his natural state, he will never see, he will never desire, he will never believe. Again, I hate to keep drawing back to your personal experience, but how many hours have you spent pleading? How many days have you spent looking into the eyes of those you love and begging them? See Christ. How do you not see what I see? How can you choose your sin over him? And your heart breaks. You know they're guilty. You know they're sinful. You know they're choosing what their heart most strongly desires. But your heart breaks because you too were once a slave. And you know that you didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You know that you didn't just stumble into the perfect church. You know that you didn't just get wise one day. You know that by the power of the word of God, you were called to life. And you look to them and you say, if you could do it for him, you would. Don't you cry out with Paul. If I could be damned that you could live, I would. So I'm telling you, you don't stop pleading. You don't stop praying. I'm telling you, if he can breathe out stars, he can breathe your son, your daughter, your husband, your wife to life. That's the hope that is found in us. I can't imagine the hopelessness. That's what my heart breaks for so many men who reject this doctrine. I'm not mad. I'm not upset. I'm not frustrated. I don't care that they call us crazy. My heart breaks because I want to show them this. Because what have you got left if the God of the universe doesn't bring men to life? If it's up to them, if it's up to you, you're out of words. What are you going to say to them? What about when they stop taking your phone calls? What about when they refuse to go to church any longer and they won't pray and they won't read their Bibles? What are you left with? But I'm telling you the God of the universe saves. He doesn't just offer salvation. He saves but the reality is most of you pray like Calvinists anyway. What do you pray for? Even those of you that think I'm not right on this, what do you pray for when you pray for those that you love? 
If you believe that God has extended the same grace to all the world, if you believe that God is working equally to save everyone that ever was, but that he has set a boundary around himself, I will not touch the hearts, I will not touch the wills of men. I will leave men to themselves at this point right here. Then what in the world are you praying for? I'm not being snarky, I'm not being silly. What are you asking God to do? If he's already given 100% to save all the world, you asking him to give 110%? And if he refuses to touch the wills and the hearts of men, if he refuses to bring men to life so that they may believe, then what are you asking him to do? The reality is every man prays like a Calvinist when somebody they love dearly enough is lost. You pray, dear God, save them. Don't leave them to themselves. Don't leave them to their autonomy. Don't leave them to their self-determination. Don't let them make the decisive choice. You chase, you chase them down and you save them. So I'm, I don't know how many more weeks we have in this. I, I think it's probably a few. But I'm asking you to just go back and study for yourself the text that we've worked through these last few weeks. Go back to these New Testament passages and see. See if it doesn't tell you why one man, tr man trusts in Christ and so many other reject. Go look at Romans 9 and Colossians 2, 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 Thessalonians 2 and 2 Corinthians 4, Acts 13, 48 and 2 Timothy 2, 24 and Matthew 11 and John 3 and John 6, John 8 and John 10 and John 15 and John 17 and just the whole book of John. And see if the same Jesus Christ that said that any who call on his name shall be saved has not also said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Then go back and prayerfully consider those texts side by side with Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 and see if you can come to any other conclusion than this. The whole of Scripture teaches that God puts before man real choices. That man is not only able, but he is compelled to choose that which he most strongly desires. That this is true free will. But that because of the fallenness of man, if left to himself, he will always choose that which is contrary to God. That man is so enslaved by sin and Satan that his mind and will and his desires are so corrupted that he will never choose Christ unless the God of the universe has chosen to reach into his chest and give him a new heart. That man will remain dead in their sin, blinded to the gospel, haters of Christ, unless God raises him to life. Dear friends, I'm telling you, once you see it, you can't unsee it. This glorious truth, it runs through the whole of Scripture. And once you see it, once you recognize who you were, once you recognize just who you were at the moment that he saved you, once you recognize that you were not some neutral moral agent, you weren't just a man going through life, sometimes choosing God, sometimes choosing sin. You weren't a man that was just drowning in a lake, calling out to God for help. That you were a hater of God at war with him. That if you could have got your hands on him, you would have killed him. And then realized that it was at that very moment that he did everything necessary to save you. You see that and see if the words amazing grace don't hit a little different. You see that and you read through Ephesians 1 and see if you don't understand for the first time what it means to do things to the praise of his glorious grace. Dear friends, this is it will change every part of your life. 
It will change your prayers. It will change your evangelism. And I promise you it will change your worship. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that you have saved us. We thank you for the revelation of your word that you did not merely extend an offer of salvation, but that you saved us. That you called us to life. You brought us to repentance. And that you will hold us fast until our very dying breath. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that and worship in light of it. Pray that the words that we sing now, these wouldn't just be flapping gums and vocal cords making a sound, but that this would be the cry of our heart to the praise of your glorious grace, that you would be honored. God, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.